This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Matt, Beyond Politics, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, thanks to all the people who responded in the last show by leaving some ratings, reviews, subscribing. We see it. We appreciate it. And I want to bring you a conversation that I just wrapped up here with Adam Kavakovich. He's the founder and CEO of an interesting group. They're called Chamber of Progress. They are not your typical industry technology group in Washington. We kind of get a view that technology advocacy groups are kind of interested in, you know, advocating for big tech platforms. Adam comes at it from a slightly different spot. He's a center left person and he approaches things, tech issues from a center left perspective. And so we talked a little bit about social media. What do we think about the fact that Facebook slash Meta is kind of getting back into the allowing false information game? That's that doesn't seem great on the surface. He had some helpful Maybe I feel a little bit better feedback on that. And of course, we had to talk about the big issue on everyone's mind when it comes to tech, which is artificial intelligence. What's the role of AI? How nervous should we be about it? What do we think about President Biden's executive order on it? All really good topics. We had to squeeze this in because Adam is in demand. He's a very busy guy, but we managed to get in interesting conversation and very glad to bring it to you. So without any further ado, here is, well, me and Adam. Is there a progressive future for technology? That is a great question to me and a great question to our guest, Adam Kavakovich, who is the founder and CEO. Did I get that even close to right, Adam? Was That's I right. Like you got it. You got ballpark? it. I'm proud no, of myself. Got it. <laughs> He's the <laughs> founder and CEO of Chamber of Progress, which is a center-left tech industry policy coalition promoting the technology's progressive future. Yes, I read that off of your website. And by the way, I'm Matt Robeson. It's Beyond Politics. And I feel obligated to say we're available wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's obvious at this point. I think people know that. Adam. People are listening after all. Is they, there? They're here. Pro- yeah, they're here, right? Like, So Adam, is there actually a progressive future for technology? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I spent my career at the intersection of democratic politics and the tech industry in part because I am a big believer that technology has helped bring more information, more goods, more services to people, really, you know, cut out a lot of middlemen, bring down the cost of goods, you know, has really just improved the quality of life. And I think a lot of small ways we sort of quickly take for granted, and that's totally fine. I understand the concern about tech companies, particularly big tech companies. They're big, they're powerful, they have a lot of information. And so we do want to make sure that they are, you know, properly regulated. But I also think the vast majority of people, I think, are appreciative of the, you know, the help that technology services provide to their lives. Look, I like technology. I I do. I mean, I have misgivings about the pickers who have to work at Amazon warehouses. Yet, I got to admit, I kind of love Amazon. I I love the convenience. I'm a consumer like everyone else. I kind of like social media. I do. I use it. On the other hand, when we talk about kind of this intersection of politics and technology, the first thing that comes to mind for most Democrats is 2016, Facebook, skullduggery by trolls and Russians and right-wingers, as if there's a difference among those. 
And I, that's what brings me to this Wall Street Journal headline from just this week. Meta allows ads claiming rigged 2020 election on Facebook and Instagram. The company has quietly allowed political advertisers to say that past elections were rigged or stolen so long as they don't question the legitimacy of ongoing and coming elections. This sends chills down my spine, and this is such a delicate problem. This show is on YouTube, on the Blue Amp channel. We talk about elections and interference and about debunking Donald Trump's claims about the 2020 elections all the time. We've gotten flagged for violations of YouTube, hence Google's policy in the past. We've had to intervene above the algorithm and eventually a human said, oops, our bad. And in the meantime, we lost hundreds and thousands of dollars of advertising. This is, and that's just our own little slice of this. You know, this is a huge problem. What's your reaction as an expert in this when you hear a headline like this? Well, first of all, I think the experience you had where, you know, in some ways you feel like the, the 2016 election was kind of the moment where you started maybe feeling more negative feelings towards tech, I think is very common, frankly, among Democrats. I think for a lot of Democrats in the Obama years, they thought, oh, well, the internet was this wonderful thing we used to elect Barack Obama. And then it became, oh my God, the internet was this thing that the Russians used to elect Trump. And I think that is a, you know, that that's an oversimplification. But I think that moment did cause some Democrats to start shifting in more negative turn against tech. I think with social media has always been hard because you know, I know the platforms all have always started from a default position of allow most speech. They generally want their platforms to be a platform for a wide range of speech. But then, of course, you get confronted with all of these real world challenges, right? You get confronted with doxing. Well, that's free speech, right? You get confronted with Holocaust denial, also free speech. But, you know, is that good for a platform? Is that healthy for a platform? And candidly, I think the, you know, foreign interference in an election dynamic that we saw in 2016 was not something we had seen before. And so understandably, I think platform, all the platforms were unprepared for it. And, you know, and then Donald Trump himself, his whole, you know, tenure as president was a huge challenge to communications norms. And January 6th was too, right? So, you know, all the platforms generally have, I think, have taken the view historically, like if you're an elected head of state, you should be able to communicate with, you know, with your constituents. But we'd never seen, you know, an insurrection like that before. And so, you know, I think with respect to, you know, I, I think the platforms are remain very wary about being the speech police, but they also, on the other hand, they recognize that if their platforms are not seen as sort of a healthy spit place to spend time that people aren't going to keep coming back. So it's just, a, it's a very difficult situation. Content moderation is really hard for all these platforms. Well, and it's really hard kind of, there's kind of our micro experience, right? We publish a video on YouTube with a prominent journalist, Lauren Windsor, who has made it her stock and trade to go undercover and exposed election denialists. She interviews John Eastman, kind of without his knowledge, talks about his, well, I used the word skullduggery before, I'll do it again. And we put up a video about this, debunking false election claims. We get tagged, we pay the penalty. When you take it in the aggregate, it, it's where you start to worry about the effect on elections. So let's think about this prospectively for just a second. I guess my ultimate question here is going to be, how worried should we be about 
social media and tech's influence on the 2024 elections. And before you answer, let me just hit you with a, a tweet, an X, a post. I don't know what you call it. Whatever they call now. You know, like a crap. I, I don't know what comes out of Twitter these days. Josh Sucker, who is a former colleague of mine from Capitol Hill, he was a lead policy aide, the lead policy aide to former Congressman John Dingell. He knows a thing or two about regulation in tech, and he shared a post that Elon Musk agreed with, saying that, quote, th this is someone who says, I, I feel like I just need to quote this, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit about how Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that these hordes of minorities that support flooding the country don't exactly like them too much. And Elon Musk responds to that saying, you have said the actual truth. So there is a great big tortilla wrapped with anti-Semitism, anti-immigration, racism, and just like shit posting. And this is the person who runs probably the most influential social media platform when it comes to politics out there. So with that in mind, how should we be feeling as Democrats about the forthcoming 2024 elections? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, look, I don't know. I don't like that either. And frankly, I think, you know, Elon Musk has done an incredible amount to just ruin Twitter and open up the, you know, the gates to cesspool and a lot of content has made it worse. I'm eager as anybody for threads or something else to really become the place where everybody collectively decides to spend their time instead. I'll go wherever everybody else wants to spend their time. But I also think that, you know, we have, you know, we, we have a situation where I'm not totally convinced that there are a lot of swing voters in the, you know, six to eight presidential states that are spending a lot of time on Twitter wondering what Elon Musk thinks about something. I don't, A, you know, most people are not on Twitter. Mm. And to the extent that like the persuadable, I mean, a lot of this communication on social media is, you know, it's preaching to the choir. It's, you know, speaking to the people who already agree not to the not to persuasion. I don't think a lot of persuasion, to be honest, is going. I don't think a lot of the true swing voters are necessarily spending a lot of time on social media dying to talk about politics. Frankly, a lot of the swing voters are pretty low, you know, often sort of, you know, they're not spending a lot of time thinking about politics. They think about it, you know, when elections come around. But I, you know, I want everybody, I want to have a multitude of platforms. I want platforms to have different content moderation policies. I want them to have the legal ability to moderate content. And that's important because you've seen MAGA governors in Texas and Florida pass laws that are under challenge to the Supreme Court that would prevent platforms from doing any content moderation. I think that's that's a huge threat. But obviously, you know, is it Elon Musk's right to to moderate less content and have Twitter become more of a cesspool? It is his right. I just think it's also bad for business. Yeah. I Boy, so much to unpack in this. Look, we can leave the social media topic because, I mean, frankly, it's rough. I, I just, 
I think you raise a really important point, which is that I actually do find that reassuring that a lot of this is preaching to the choir within your filter bubble. And from a campaign and political professionals standpoint, what you're looking to do in communicating on these platforms and getting your clips up on these platforms is you're basically looking to fundraise. You're not really looking to campaign. You're looking to fundraise. And to the extent that you're running any advertising on them, you're just trying to gin up turnout. It's the it's the I, I'm not so sure that I'm worried about the material that Facebook is or Meta is going to allow if they're careful. It's the micro targeting that I think really became sort of the killer app, pun intended, in 2016. It was the ability to bring content to the exact most vulnerable people and to dissuade potential voters in certain populations, activate people in, in other populations. So maybe if they're thoughtful about that, maybe it doesn't bug me quite so much. Let's talk about the tech issue that I think is foremost on most people's minds, artificial intelligence, just broadly. How big a 30,000 foot level concern is artificial intelligence? Like for people who are not political obsessives, are, do you worry about AI or you think it's good? I mean, I think AI has been around with around for decades. I mean, a lot of the things that we, you know, we are we live with today have been brought to us by AI. And so so frankly, a lot of that's not really new. I think generative AI, this idea that, you know, a whole new, you know, a, a service like ChatGPT could create an essay or could create a poem or mid-journey could, you know, could create a, a picture out of description. That's new. Generative AI is that is genuinely new. But the idea of you know, computers doing things in advanced levels that were previously done by humans, that's not new. Look, I think all of this to me is wrapped up in, you know, I think understandable long debate we've been having about the role of technology in our lives. Do we want to, you know, sort of, I don't believe we should sort of give ourselves over to sort of unfettered technology. We should draw limits as human beings saying, you know, we don't, there's a point at which we want our technology to end and our humanity to be preserved, right? I don't have my phone next to me when I sleep because I don't want to check it all the time, right? That's a personal decision that I make. You know, I think that what I usually think is that um, the answer is somewhere in between the hype of the optimists and the, you know, doom of the pessimists. I'm sure it's not going to be, any new technology is not going to be as great as its biggest cheerleaders say. Mm. nor is it going to be as terrible as its biggest doomsayers say, and it will be somewhere in the middle. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out exactly, you know, what that is and what rules we ought to have around it. Here's the piece that I worry about, and it's subtle. And I think because it's subtle, it's perhaps insidious. I'm less concerned and I'm not an expert. I've asked experts like you, how worried are you about the AI apocalypse? And I think the problem that we have is that we think in cultural metaphor and the cultural metaphor we usually reach for is film. And so we tend to think of pile of skulls, Terminator. That's the AI apocalypse. Skynet becomes self-aware, comes after us, and all of a sudden we've got Austrian cyborgs coming after us. The version that I worry more about is from the matrix and it's a more kind of subtle way that our existence gets shaped by machines by machine learning by by artificial intelligence i'll give you an example most hollywood script green light decisions 
as I understand it, are now made through AI, through trying to understand script elements and how they correlate with previous successes. When you, it, it's baked into certain platforms, Microsoft Teams, if you're writing something, there's predictive word generation where it will guess what you're likely to say next. Look, here's my policy. I do sleep with my phone next to my bed because I'm an addict, but I don't use those suggestions because I don't want my thought to be nudged in that kind of a way. But I'm worried about these kinds of things. I'm worried about right now, if you ask ChatGPT to come up with a script for this interview, it will suck. It's truly bad. It's, it's completely uninteresting. It sounds like it sounds like a fifth grader who didn't speak English as a first language came up with it. But the nudges, the because essentially what AI is doing is it's crowdsourcing to here's what people have done before. Here's the thoughts that have occurred before. Here's how popular they are. And that what that essentially does is it sands off the edges of human creativity and channels us into doing, hey, here's what's been done before. That, is that, I don't know, am I worried at like too subtle a level or, you know, like, do you, does any of this hold water for you? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Well, I think about, you know, for a couple of years now, Gmail has had these, you know, suggested replies, right? And and I would say I use them maybe like a quarter of the time. So the other three quarters of the time, it's not really a good suggestion, right? But right, that right. one quarter time, it like saves me a couple of seconds. So I appreciated that. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't want the Gmail smart reply to write a screenplay. I think that'd be a pretty boring movie. I agree. Or, I think what I would I like think... better would maybe be like, what if they just threw in something random? Um, they give you three suggestions. Yeah. What if they threw in something that's like, you know, hey, you're a jerk. You know, like just mix things up a little bit. Yeah, I think the genuine creativity is always going to be. I mean, look, I think like technology has been helping us, you know, creatively for a long time now. And it hasn't squelched, you know, human creativity. And I don't think it will. I really don't think it will. I think it will just take it to new heights. And I know people worry about that, but I just think, well, all of all of us consumers, you know, now you can, you know, you can tell, you know, we all have some ability to tell, you know, we, we can tell the difference between a, most people can tell the difference between a real wood table and a, you know, wood veneer table, right? We just can tell the difference, right? Yeah. The wood veneer is like cheaper and stuff. And so I just think we'll evolve. We'll, I think we'll become more discerning, but I also suspect that there will remain a high premium on the truly original human generated content. And yet we've already seen the, the, the Hollywood strikes were largely driven by concerns about AI. I mean, they were driven yeah. by, by other economic factors, but there are some real concerns about, you know, right now people are listening to this podcast and I use an editing platform that has AI assistance and can generate, and I've enabled this, it can generate an AI version of my voice. So after this, I could, I mean, I could just record myself saying something different. I could, but also I could have the AI for the audio version with a generated voice, say some random stuff. It could probably sample your voice because you've said enough at this point and create an AI version of you. And I could have you saying, well, you're a jerk, Matt. I, I, right. That seems to be more of where the concern is coming in from a Washington regulatory standpoint, which is of course, you know, I've really, you know, held out on our audience here. This is a lot of your expertise. Yeah. What do you make? 
therefore, of President Biden's executive order on AI, mm -hmm. the approach that the Biden administration is taking and what's in the order and what's not in the order. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it was focused on like, how can AI improve government? I think that's good. I think, you know, we should you know be optimistic about improving government services. And then, you know, I think there were some, I would have liked to see maybe a little more optimistic about, you know, private sector uses, potential uses of AI, but you know, it's governments, it tends to be more focused on the potential downsides. And I understand that. I think your issue about, you know, so for example, there's a debate right now about political deep fakes, mm. political advertising. And, you know, there's bills in Congress, there's been some congressional bills, uh, or some bills at the state level, rather, that would ban um, political campaigns or, or require platforms, hold them liable for allowing um, fake political advertising. And, you know, the truth is that fake political advertising is probably protected by the First Amendment, it's probably constitutional. But what you've seen Google and Microsoft and Meta all do is announce essentially that they're requiring disclosure of any ads that run on their platforms that include a fake imagery for political advertising. So I, you know, I'm optimistic that I think steps like that, I, all of the innovators in AI are very conscious of the kind of information authenticity problem, right? And that if we have a world where everything becomes inauthentic, then you sort of what, how do you, you know, what's trust, right? So, you know, when you think about Google's original search rankings were this based on this idea what they call page rank, which is essentially the more people link to, you know, Wikipedia or the New York Times, that's a sign that the more people trust it. That's become, you know, a little bit outmoded over time. Facebook's trust model is, hey, I know you, right? You know, we're friends in real life, Matt. And so if you post something like I can, I trust you and I can trust it. And that's its trust model. Trust models are going to be really important because in a world where there's so much information, we're all going to be looking towards, you know, how do we know we can trust something? And I think there's always going to be, there's always going to be a premium put on that. Right. That's one of the lessons of the social media world, the new advertising world, which is the, the currency. This is why influencers are a thing. The currency yeah. of known, trusted voices. And that's why, again, just circling back to social media, the Facebook machinations were so insidious is because they were coming from seemingly trusted sources. And people have such an intimate relationship with this technology. What the other, I think the thing that worried me a little bit about President Biden's approach and, you know, overall, from my non-expert standpoint, seemed like a reasonable first step. I wasn't throwing up all over it. I wasn't. It did seem to take a sort of let's not move too fast approach, which is probably the right thing. One mm -hmm. thing we've learned from social media is that we didn't foresee the pitfalls that would happen three to five years out. They're incredibly hard yeah. to foresee. And I think that's where some of the criticism has come in around the Biden proposal is, you know, there's no licensing regime for advanced AI models, which is something that, you know, Sam Altman, uh, other technologists have been calling for, yeah. you know, you don't learn details of training data, model size was being used to train these artificial intelligences. There's not a lot of guidance about intellectual property law. There are just these areas that are sort of big question marks. It leaves them as big question marks. How do you, given what we know about how hard it is to predict where the dangers are, where the pitfalls will be, how do you, from a government regulation standpoint, deal with those unknowns and kind of create an approach that's flexible enough to anticipate them and try and stream them in a better direction. I think all of the companies in this space are doing a lot to 
try to predict and be responsible and be safe, responsible actors. So I, I give them a lot of credit for that, but they're never going to be perfect. And I do think any new technology can have the, a million great intentions, but there's always going to be that 1% or 2% abuse case. There's always going to be somebody who abuses it, whether it's a, you know, the Russian in election interference or whether it's child abusers or whatever the case may be, criminals. And so you have to go into it when you're building a service with eyes open. But you also, I think, want to be mindful of that we may not know what the problem is until we get a chance to try this in the real world. And I, I think that's good. The alternative is a world where you kind of end up with a, you know, a mother may I approach to innovation mm. with the government. And like I see this right now working on autonomous vehicles. And there are a number of states where autonomous vehicles are not yet legal because the state has to authorize it. And it's scary. And I understand that. But I'm a, an optimist that autonomous vehicles are going to be end up being a great thing. And I think in the situation where you have to ask the government, can I have perm permission to innovate? Government is not really designed to be risk-taking in that regard. I think it's much wiser to let the innovation happen and then see, okay, how do we want to regulate to prevent these problems from recurring? Yeah, I mostly agree with that, although the other end of the spectrum is also true. Government is really not good at moving quickly when it does identify a problem that it has to true. address. And you just hate to see technology move along so fast that Apple tries to turn us into human senti pads. On that <laughs> delicious note, I have to let you go. You are a very busy guy. Adam Kavakovich. Oh, I, I think I was within like 5%. You got it. You got my it. My AI voice is going to get it perfect. Thanks so much. Founder, CEO, Chamber of Progress. We'll have to have you back. Really appreciate all the insights. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it.